Let us pray. Our Lord and Father, our Sunday is coming, but may we learn the lessons of Friday this day. Uh, speak to us in such a way, uh, by your word and spirit, this Good Friday, uh, that we would fall down and worship as we should. Comfort and change us by your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, Good Friday is full of seeming contradictions. Now, history's darkest day, and we call it good. Now, the day where the only innocent man, truly innocent man, was executed as a criminal. We killed our maker. It's evil at its worst, and at the same time, it is good for us. And the benefits of Good Friday flow from holding those apparent contradictions together. Uh, In the late 19th century, a German illustrator produced a picture uh, called My Wife and My Mother-in-Law. And then a British cartoonist, uh, William Hill, created his variation in 1915. Same principle in the pictures. You can see it on the screen. It's clearly one figure. Uh, You see a woman. Uh, But maybe we don't see all the same one. See, some of us... In either picture you look at, some of us immediately see a young woman with a defined jawline looking over her shoulder away from us. Others saw an old woman with a prominent nose hunched into her fur coat. And seeing one and then the other, you can obviously slide back and forth and see, see the old woman, then the young, the young, then the uh, One figure who is both an old and young woman. Uh, Some have called this uh, picture the ambiguous woman. And a true appreciation of the picture is um, seeing both the illustrator's wife and his mother-in-law holding together the seeming contradictions in the one picture. And to get all the benefits of Good Friday, you need to hold the seeming contradictions together. If you see this day clearly, then your understanding of God Your eternal future, even the shape of your daily life will be changed for the better. A simple truth, as we hold the seeming contradictions, um, God freed us by his blood. The darkest day in history is good because God freed us by his blood. And three aspects of that this day. First, God bled. The seeming contradiction, the immortal dies. Uh, In praying through the seven words of the cross, we have remembered Christ's suffering on the cross. Uh, Of the four biographies of Jesus, it is John who records Jesus' thirst. Christ's humanity and weakness is imprinted on our minds this day. And in our readings from Revelation, the the, the revelation John later received, that same John, um, Jesus' humanity is still real, but our attention is refocused. It's, It's drawn to his divinity. That the man on the cross is God. Revelation 1 verse 8. He is the Alpha and the Omega. The the first and the last letters of the Greek Greek alphabet. He's the beginning and the end. As Alpha, he was before there was anything. He was before all things. He made all things. He's God. As Omega, he will outlast this creation. He will be forever. All things were made for him. He is the purpose of creation. He's God. 
He always was, still is, always will be. He's the Almighty. Um, three times from 1 verse 17 and, and the verses following, Jesus says, I am. I am. I am is God's personal name. I am. I define myself. You don't define me. And Jesus there is described with his picture language to try and capture something of his glory. Um, without unpacking the, the snowy white hair, the, the glowing bronze feet, the sword in his mouth, the, the idea is that they're all picture language. It's all visual language of his divine power. And really, you learn everything you need to know from John's reaction in 1 verse 17. I fell at his feet as though dead. See, John knew that Jesus, John knew Jesus, John knew Jesus personally. Um, John shared life with him for three years. But now John sees Jesus in all his splendor and glory, that the reality of being in God's presence overwhelms John. See, that seeming contradiction. The immortal dies. God bled. 1 verse 5. 1 verse 5. He freed us from our sins by his blood. 1 verse 18. I was dead. Jesus genuinely died. After thirsting on the cross, he said, it is finished. He gave up his spirit. Um, Expert executioners pierced his side with a spear, confirming what had happened. God died. And for a time, the one who was and is and is to come wasn't. God bled. God should not bleed. He doesn't need to. He, he didn't have to. He doesn't deserve to. God was slain. Not pointlessly. Over a page or two, Revelation 5, John weeps over our broken world. Uh, so a scroll is introduced in the right hand of God um, and the scroll contains the world's future. Uh, in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 2, in Zechariah 5, the scroll contains words of woe and judgment and lament. And without this judgment, the glory of restoration can never exist. And so a search party goes out looking for someone who's worthy to make the future happen, someone who is worthy to be able to bring that, that, that salvation as well as the judgment. And they go to the ends of the earth and they find nothing. And then the remarkable happens in verse 4. Uh, John weeps. Tears in heaven. You know, we're so used to hearing of heaven without tears, but the possibility of sin escaping judgment is cause for tears. If no one opens the scrolls, we are stuck with this world being as good as it gets. And so John cries because if there is no one worthy, evil will never be dealt with. And if the future is eternal disappointment and hurt, everlasting cancer and broken relationships, ongoing pain and lies, if that's the future, we should all weep. But the elders point to hope, the subversive power of Jesus, the victorious saviour, the lion of Judah in 5 verse 5, who turns out in verse 6 to be a slain lamb, like that picture of the ambiguous woman, one figure. And he is able to, to bring the future judgment and glory, for he is the sacrificed lamb of God, but he is not weak. No, the seven horns, that's a picture of, picture language of perfect power perfect power and and that power is seen in tearing death apart from the inside that he might fix this broken world now john stott writes uh, in the real world i'll give you a little bit more than what i have up there he sets it up by saying this in the real world of pain how could one worship a god who is immune to it i have entered many buddhist temples in different asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the buddha His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth. A remote look on his face, 
detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I have had to look away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to the lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us and our sufferings become more manageable in the light of his. Uh, Stott finishes, says this, there is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolises divine suffering. The immortal dies. And holding this contradiction together, it is right to look And mourn that God bled. See, 1 verse 7 says, When every eye sees him, all people, even those who pierced him, they will mourn. That is, when you see clearly what your sin did to God, it will break your heart and you'll want nothing to do with that sin. Uh, April 2019, Notre Dame Cathedral was engulfed in flames. Uh, Thousands of Parisians lined the Seine. They, They couldn't do a thing except grieve. Notre Dame Cathedral had stood for nearly a thousand years as a piece of architecture. Uh, Its beauty brought tourists from around the world. As a piece of engineering, it symbolised a great civilisation. And as it burned, while it was still burning, President Macron gave a speech and he said, Notre Dame is our history, our literature, part of our psyche, the place of all our great events, our epidemics, our wars, our liberations, the epicentre of our lives. Notre Dame is burning And I know the sadness and this tremor felt by so many French people. And grief that that began with thousands lining the Seine uh, flowed into vigils and mournful street concerts. What was going on? See, deep within, Parisians knew there is something wrong about seeing beauty and glory destroyed. God bled. The eternal God of all life was killed. Divine beauty and glory was destroyed for your sin and mine. And so look and mourn. And when you see clearly that it was your selfishness, your little white lies, your bitterness and envy, your pride and greed that required his blood, you mourn. And you want nothing more to do with the sin that made the immortal lie. Secondly, God's blood frees us from eternal rejection. Another seeming contradiction, God honours imperfect people the God who bled did it 1 verse 5 because he loves us present tense he loves you right now despite your sin that required his death and in 1 verse 17 John falls down as though dead in the presence of God that is he knows his unworthiness he knows what he deserves he knows that a sinner cannot be safe in the presence of perfection any more than an ice cube can last in a raging fireplace Imperfect people should be afraid in the presence of God. Imperfect people deserve to be eternally rejected. But how does the God of love respond? Look at it in verse 17. He placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. Divine touch 
God comes close and picks John up and welcomes him. Christ says, don't be afraid. He has dealt with the sin that keeps us from him. He has dealt with it once for all. Verse 18, he holds the keys to death and Hades. That is, he broke death on the cross and from now on he's got the keys. He can open the gates of death whenever he wants and he can let out whoever he wants into eternal life. But even better, through faith in his blood, they are honoured. Every believer is is fundamentally changed by the cross. We've got this new identity, this new status. 1 verse 6 says it. We're a kingdom and priests to God. Uh, And it goes further in chapter 5, 5 verse 9 and 10. We did read it, but it's there again. Purchased at great cost, not just to be slaves, but to be a kingdom and priests to serve God and to reign on the earth forever. As God and his blood elevates, lifts up every believer... Your background, your past performance don't matter. You trust him and you will share in ruling creation forever. What an honour. God honours imperfect people. Uh, And holding on to that that seeming contradiction, you realise God offers you a new status. Uh, Ray Ortland writes, Every one of us wants to know, uh, sorry, every one of us knows the shame of guilty self-awareness and the fear of exposure. Uh, But we don't want to live in the isolation of that darkness. We long for freeing relationships with others, especially God, but without the gospel we hide, we conceal, we falsify ourselves in order to appear better than we are. Or conversely, we may trot out our failings with assertive self-display, demanding acceptance, a more modern response. But the gospel says your shame is real, even more real than you know, but this is what God has done. He's put it all onto Christ at the cross where your substitute was utterly shamed and exposed and condemned for you. And now your shame no longer defines you. What reveals your future forever is this word, adorned. Adorned. Not shamed, adorned. Lovely, attractive. And the moment is coming when he will look into your eyes with glad adoration and you will look into his eyes with confident surrender and nothing will ever, ever spoil it again. See what God is offering us on that Good Friday? He knows your guilt. He knows your shame. He knows your fears completely. But he invites you to join his kingdom. Be his priest. Reign with him forever on earth. He is giving you a new exalted status. See, God bled to free us from eternal rejection. And he honors imperfect people. And thirdly, lastly, God's blood frees us for right worship. The third seeming contradiction, service is freedom. Service is freedom. Uh, God's blood uh, bled to to restore us to our original purpose, that we might live selflessly for his glory. So uh, 1 verse 5 and 6, we are freed by his blood. We are remade that we might serve God. And then you get to chapter 5, and chapter 5 is dominated by this song of joy. uh, And the elders recognize Christ's ability to do what no one else in heaven or earth could do, uh, bring a wayward, self-destructive people back to the freedom of living according to our design. And they sing a new song in verse 9 of worship. And that builds to a bigger chorus in verse 11. That is, those with the clearest view of God, those who are dwelling in his presence and see him without, without any, any kind of veil, any obscurity, they recognize he is worthy of adoration. And they find joy and freedom in service. Notice what they say, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. As God's blood freed us for right worship. Christ's blood transforms us right now. 
If you hold the seeming contradiction together, that service is freedom. Do that and make Christ your Omega. That is, an Omega is an end point. Uh, Omega points of life are non-negotiables. Things we say, oh, if I don't have that, well, what's the point? Omega points give meaning. And and for the atheist, with no Alpha Creator and no Omega Judge, life has no true meaning. It's the slavery of pointlessness. But 1 verse 8, Christ is the Omega. He is creation's end point. He is the ultimate purpose. He is the one who frees you to have a life of meaning. Now, Timothy Keller observes most people approach Jesus not as that Omega point, but as the means to get to the Omega points we otherwise aren't achieving. As he's saying, most people start coming to God not to know and enjoy God for himself, but to use God as a means to gain our real heart's desire. So that they'll come to God to beat their addiction. Or they'll turn to Christ hoping to, to smooth family troubles. Or they'll try Christianity expecting health and wealth. And your real Omega points get exposed when all those things fall apart. When you shake your fist at God and said, you know, I've, I've kept my life pure. I've, I've tried to live decently. I've, I've asked for this and this and this and I haven't got it. I, you know, I tell the truth. I lose a sale. I lose a friend. And, and in that moment, you're saying, God, you're negotiable, but what I want is not negotiable. As disappointment exposes your real Omega points. But God's blood, this, this day, this Good Friday, frees us to make Jesus your Omega point. To have a real and lasting meaning that Jesus died for you and he calls you to serve him not to get anything but simply to have him which is reward enough Uh, the missionary Elizabeth Elliot understood this uh, a lifetime's work trying to bring uh, the gospel to an unreached South American people was lost uh, when a key indigenous convert uh, and leader died This, this was a lifetime's work for God And it was lost. Uh, And in her book, No Graven Image, she writes, God, if he was merely my accomplice, had betrayed me. If, on the other hand, he was God, then he had freed me. Now, Elliot found the freedom of Christ as her Omega. Not serving him to get something, even serving him to get the goodness of successful missionary work. No, no. It's the freedom of putting her hope in God himself instead of the anxious slavery of God and using God to meet her own plans and agenda. Say that quote again, God, if he was merely my accomplice, he had betrayed me. If, on the other hand, he was God, he had freed me. Make Christ your Omega. God bled to free you for perfect worship. So this day is full of seeming contradictions. Hold them together and you will be free. Let me pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Alpha and Omega, the one who truly died and now is truly alive, the one who died that we might live. Father, may we behold him clearly and in beholding him be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen.